friends, fellow philosophers, uh, welcome back to uh, our discussion on faith and reason. Uh, today we're going to think a little bit about Reformed epistemology uh, and how uh, the philosophers Alvin Plantinga and Nicholas Wolterstorff have affected uh, current discussions of, of faith and reason and, and how we think about this. Uh, and so in a lot of ways it, it builds on what we've been talking about with Pascal and Clifford and William James. Um, and you know, in a lot of ways, what what this um, perspective is is doing is really making us uh, think about how we classify our uh, belief in God. And, and so, just a couple things in a nutshell to kind of set out uh, where we're going, and then we'll unpack these uh, for for just a few minutes. So, in a nutshell, what Reformed epistemology is is doing. Uh, is first on the on its critical side on on what it's sort of working against. Uh, it takes on uh, the foundationalist or the evidentialist, and I'll explain those terms in in just a minute. But it, it takes on the foundationalist or evidentialist objection to theistic belief. Somebody who says, in essence, show me the evidence uh, for God. And so what they're going to do is take on that objection and, and say that that objection. Uh, is actually rooted in an incoherent standard for evidence. Okay, so we're going to unpack that more in just a minute, but I want, to, I want you to have that in their mind. So on the negative side, they're working in that way to say, actually, this, this, this objection from uh, people like Clifford or people kind of building on Clifford, it, that do, it doesn't actually work when they say, show me the process, you know, show me how you build up your argument for God. And on the positive side, then, they're going to argue that belief in God is, and this is actually a technical philosophical term, is basic, and it's properly basic. Uh, and, and so we'll unpack what in a little more detail what basic beliefs are and think about uh, how that works in just a second here. But one thing that's important to note is that part of part of who they're working against, part of who Planning and, and Wolterstorff are working against, it, it's not just non Christian evidentialists, people who say, you know, show me the evidence, build me up the argument. They're actually working, yeah, they would say that some Christians have bought into that evidentialist game. Uh, and, and so Christians oftentimes, uh, from their perspective, kind of take the bait and say, okay, here's the evidence. I'm going to build up this argument. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you how I can give you the evidence, give you the reason that's going to get you to belief in God. And part of what Reformed epistemology is actually working against is, is going to say, um, really, that, that Christians don't even need to play that game uh, that, uh, as, as Nicholas Wolterstorff puts it, uh, we are entitled to reason from our belief in God without having first reasoned to it. In other words, that, that God is, belief in God is, is basically, it's one of those things you can just, in some ways we could say, take for granted and, and build on rather than being sort of the end of a long, drawn out philosophical argument. Uh, so, so let's unpack some of these more technical terms. So basic beliefs, uh, as I've just kind of said, actually a basic belief is something you argue from, not something that you argue to. And typically philosophers say that, you know, what, what, counts as a basic belief. You know, basic belief has to be, in a lot of ways, it's the foundation of all your other beliefs. So it has to be something that's self-evident. 
So if you think about our discussion of Pascal previously, um, one example of a self-evident belief would, would be a lot of mathematical statements like 2 plus 2 equals 4. That's, that's just self-evident. And so you don't have to argue to that. It's something that you can just uh, take for granted and, and argue from and build on. Um, there are also other, and this, this term gets a little bit tricky when you hear people try to actually define it, but people say beliefs that are incorrigible are also basic beliefs. So for example, a lot of times people would take um, a really famous philosophical statement like that of uh, Descartes who says, I think, uh, therefore I am. And so he, he has this belief that he is, uh, and in, in some ways you can't contradict this or you can't undermine it because by by very nature of the fact that even if he's like doubting it or questioning, do I believe that, that there's always the I there. Uh, and so that's something that you, that serves as the building block uh, then for, for much of Western philosophy after Descartes. Uh, so something is self, self-evident or incorrigible, uh, or, you know, some might even put in here evident to the senses in, in, in because when you think about, um, that, that doesn't mean that everything your senses says is true, obviously, that's, that's not always the case, but there's a sense in which um, a lot of our empirical observations of the world around us just work from this, this basic trust that, you know, if something's evident to my senses, um, I don't necessarily need to, need to argue that the sky appears blue to me or, or the grass appears green. That's something that you just uh, can build on rather than, than argue to. So those are basic beliefs. Now, when we think about foundationalism, foundationalism is is this idea that you know all our beliefs need to be properly anchored in foundational basic beliefs, so that all of our arguments, if, if you get into an argument about about really anything, at the end of the day, you should be able to dig down into and and be able to show how this is linked into some kind of basic belief, uh, and so. And when you think then about how foundationalism uh, works with evidentialism, evidentialism essentially says that the standard of, of rationality, this is um, what it says in modern Christian thought in the reading for this time, the standard of rationality is evidence or argument grounded in or provided for by basic beliefs. And so, so here, you know, think about Clifford. Part of his point is, all of your beliefs uh, have to have, have to be built up with some kind of evidence that you can articulate that, it, that if you have a belief without reasons, if you have a belief without evidence, uh, that's actually evil, that's, uh, that's actually harmful. Uh, and so the goal here is to say you have to be able to provide um, all the links in the chain, so to speak, that, that go all the way down uh, to the foundational basic beliefs. And so with, with that as a backdrop, um, you know, think about some of the accusations that sometimes uh, could be made against theists, against people who believe that, that there is a God. Um, you know, one common one is that the theist uh, is not doing their duty. They're not going through the proper process. Um, Alvin Plantinga talks about this a little bit in one of his writings in our in our textbook Philosophy: The Quest for Truth. That you know, again, you think about um, the story in Clifford of the Shipowner. That that's the accusation is you haven't actually taken the time to make sure that your ship is seaworthy, uh, and so you you haven't really done due diligence there. So that's that that's one accusation. Uh, a second accusation, again, this you can see how this flows from Clifford, is that the theist 
should begin from a place of disbelief until they have sufficient evidence. And so, again, the idea here is that disbelief should be the default posture. Uh, until I can accumulate the proper evidence uh, to allow me to make this argument, um, that's, that, that's where I'm, you know, I'm not going to believe. Uh, and so both of those are common accusations. A, a third is, you know, and you kind of get this a little bit with somebody like Richard Dawkins, um, is that the theist actually has a defective intellectual process. Uh, that there, there's something going wrong in uh, the thinking mechanism, the thinking process uh, of the theist that sort of explains how they end up with this warped view uh, that, that there is a God. Um, now, Plantinga, as I mentioned in one of his writings, he, he considers these different objections and, and basically says, hold on a second here, let's, uh, let's think about this a little bit more deeply. Now, it, he does note some points of agreement uh, with uh, some of these, some of these critics, he he says, you know, it's right that we do have obligations about our beliefs. Uh, if somebody says, "Why do you believe that?" Um, you can't, you can't just say, "Well, just because." Uh, especially if you start digging into more important things, things that, things that reflect uh, matters of importance or ultimate value. If you say, you know, well, why do you believe that? And there is no answer. That that is a problem. That we should test our beliefs. That if we do um, have different beliefs, whether it's philosophical beliefs, uh, you know, beliefs about public policy, beliefs about science, uh, that we want to actually know and understand the reasons be behind those to some degree. Uh, so that's so that's right. That's good. He's on the same page there. Yes, we have obligations about our beliefs, but he also, and I think this is a really helpful concept. He talks about what he calls all things considered intellectual duties, okay? And, and I think this hopefully responds to some of the concerns that, that I raised in class about W.K. Clifford's point that, you know, you cannot believe anything. Nobody should believe anything anywhere about anything unless they have sufficient evidence. And, and planning his point with all things considered intellectual duties is it, 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 it's, it's almost more like a human and more humane approach uh, to our beliefs. He's like, yes, we have intellectual duties, but, you know, I have to come to some conclusions about, you know, my medical care, and I just don't have time to understand and read and know everything involved. And so, you know, would, is it right to claim that if I am not up to speed in the same literature and knowledge as my medical doctor, that I am not fulfilling my intellectual duties? And planning would say no. It's not you know you want to do due diligence. You want to make sure you're going to a good doctor. You know, if there's any suspicion you're not, you, you might want to check around. You might want to get a second opinion. Um, but but all things considered, intellectual duties means we just don't have time uh, to evaluate all the possible kind of truth claims that would fly at us throughout the day, much less throughout the week, much less throughout our lives. Uh, and so. We do need to give care to these things. We do need to have to think about them, but it but it has to be, you know, recognizing all things considered. Yes, I've done the best the best possible job, and so you know, with that concept in mind, he says, you know, who exactly is is the atheist uh, critiquing here? Uh, especially when you think about you know this critique that somebody's not doing their duty, not going through the process, um, that there's a defective intellectual process. 
He says, you know, I mean, even think about like a 14-year-old theist, somebody who, who maybe grew up in a, a Christian background, so they believe in God, um, and they've, you know, they have some basic questions about their faith. They, they've asked questions. They, they, they try to ponder it. You know, they're not just sticking their head in the sand. Um, you know, that 14-year-old theist is not going to sound like a world-class philosopher, but planning is going to say, you know, if they're attentive to those things and they're actually trying to think through and, and look for reasons and, and kind of ponder things, you can't say that they've violated their intellectual duties or that they're just ignoring them. Uh, and he says, I mean, and then take somebody on the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of growth and maturity, you know, a, a philosophical genius like Thomas Aquinas, you know, here's somebody who believes in God, uh, but clearly is no intellectual slouch, somebody who's maybe one of the greatest thinkers the world has ever seen, is it really right to claim that, that he's somehow not doing his duty or has a defective process? That, you know, that, that just seems wrong. Uh, and so part of what I appreciate about Plantinga's point here, by saying, yes, we have obligations about our beliefs, but we also have to be clear that, you know, that if you actually tried to enact um, what Clifford proposes, uh, you would not be able to function as a human being. And, and so planning his point actually seems to be more faithful to kind of who or what we are as, as human beings. Our, our primary goal is not just to test truth claims uh, with every minute of every hour of the day, uh, but that we have to, in some ways, uh, engage in questions, trust others. You know, that's why I think planning it sounds a little bit more like uh, William James in, in this score, that, that it seems to be more attentive to the actual way human life works. Um, and so, so he says, yeah, there's, there's this point of agreement. Uh, but it, here's, okay, hang with me because this gets, this gets heady. Plantinga also points out that there is this problem uh, with foundationalism and how foundationalism approaches basic beliefs. And, and here's, I'll try to kind of translate this, this, this very philosophical sounding statement. Um, but, but he says that, you know, in, in order for a, a belief to be properly basic, uh, he says, here's the basic rule of foundationalism. Uh, if a belief is going to be properly basic, then it has to be self-evident, incorrigible, or evident to the senses uh, for, for the particular person in question. Now, so think about that statement, okay? Like imagine in your mind, here, here's a statement in quotes that says, you know, this belief is properly basic uh, if it's self-evident, incorrigible, or evident to the senses. Here's a problem that Plantinga points out. This is super heady philosophy. So think about that proposition that, that, that I just stated. Is that proposition, is that statement, is that statement self-evident? Is that statement incorrigible? Is that statement, truth of that statement evident to the senses? The answer to all three of those questions is actually no. You know, the, the statement that this belief is basic uh, if it's self-evident, et cetera, et cetera, that's not self-evident. Um, is, it, is it incorrigible? He might be saying, well, I don't know what's, the answer is no. Philosophers have examined it and said, no, it's not incorrigible. It's not something just um, obviously true and, and kind of has to be held logically. Uh, and you know, the truth of that statement is not evident to the senses in the way that, you know, the, the, the sky's blue or the grass is green. And so here's the, here's the heady philosophical point. Hang with me. 
the rule, this, this foundational rule for foundationalism actually doesn't meet its own standard. And so it's, so it's like you have this rule that holds everything else to the standard, but the rule itself uh, doesn't meet the standard. And so because of this, Plantinga says, th this foundationalist approach uh, is self-referentially incoherent. It's, it, it, it simply doesn't work. Um, you know, I, I think about other examples of, you know, because self-referential incoherence. Okay, what, what exactly does that mean? Think about if somebody says there's no such thing as truth. Well, that itself is a truth claim, so it, it, it undermines itself, it contradicts itself. Or if somebody says something like all statements are false, well, that doesn't work because for that to be true, then at least one statement has to be true. That is all statements are false, and so therefore all statements are not false. There's at least one statement that's true. So, so there's this incoherence. Um, or, if somebody, or if somebody says language has no meaning, um, the fact that I can respond to that shows that obviously language does have meaning. Uh, and so that's when I talk about self-referential incoherence, like that's what I mean, this idea that at the heart of foundationalism is actually this thing that doesn't meet its own standard. And, and, and so it, it so falls apart in that way. And so ha having established that foundationalism doesn't work, that it's ultimately incoherent, um, Planning and Wolfersdorf propose uh, th that we think about belief in God as properly basic. Okay, and so now, now to be to be clear, you know, even in Planning's Planning has this essay in our book called "Religious Belief Without Evidence." No evidence does is not the same thing. It's not the same thing as saying that belief in God is groundless or or arbitrary. Like somebody just picks it out of the thin air. Like uh, you know, well, I guess I'll believe in God uh, for 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 no apparent reason. Uh, in fact, he says, you know, when you start thinking about belief in God, he says there are some analogies uh, here with some of our other beliefs. And by the way, all these other things I'm going to talk about here in a second, th these, these beliefs are also things that um, they don't meet the criteria of foundationalism. They're not self-evident. They're not incorrigible. They're not evident to the senses. But most people would say that you're totally justified in, in believing them. Uh, and so... One analogy here is is actually our, our our memory beliefs, beliefs about my experience of the past. Um, that there, you know, I've got all kinds of memories about this is my experience as a kid, this is my experience growing up. Um, but that belief is not self-evident, uh, and it's not evident to the senses, and it's not uh, you know. And so when I think about how that belief works. Um, Planning is saying, look, b belief in God may be analogous to that kind of to that kind of belief. Uh, or another example is belief that that ascribes mental states to other people. In other words, you know, when I engage other human beings, I am assuming that their experience of the world um, is like mine. That I'm not just you know that what I'm encountering is not. Um, just robots kind of cleverly designed to interact with me, but but I, because I have this kind of interior life of thoughts and emotions and feelings that that um, flow out of me to some degree, but there's also a level of hiddenness of that from other people. And and so, you know, when I look at somebody and I say, you know, that, that person's feeling angry, like I can, I can see something externally, but I'm also talking about their 
internal mental and and emotional state and so um, that's again it, it's a kind of example that this it's not something that's self-evident or evident to the senses uh, but it's something that I think most people would say well yeah you're justified in in concluding that uh, and so part of what part of what planning is pointing to is not maybe evidence in the way that Clifford would look for it uh, but but rather justifying conditions rather than evidence. So so think about it this way, like, and here's where Wolterzorfer and, and Planning both speak to this in, in different ways. Um, when, you know, when is it that people uh, come to believe in God? You know, it, it may be for some through an experience of a kind of general revelation, like, man, I just, uh, you know, when you go out in, uh, creation and experience the wonder of creation. You know, maybe you're at Lake Michigan, you see the sunset, or you know, or maybe you you go out west and your experience is just the the mountains are incredible. And there's this this sense of like God is showing you something about His power and wonder and glory through that. Now notice, um, the the conclusion. You know, somebody's experience of that is not simply reducible to like. Yeah, man, I had this amazing experience outdoors, uh, and sort of the thing that hit me is like there is a God. That's like a very um, kind of cold philosophical statement, but it's more like you know God is showing His glory and His wonder and His goodness and His power through this. And so obviously, if I'm experiencing all that, then there must be a God. Or if somebody comes to faith in Jesus, you know, they they hear the story of who Jesus is and of the love of God that that's shown in Jesus and of the salvation and rescue that's there. Um, and and you know, maybe it's maybe it's through a friend or maybe it's through a sermon, maybe it's through you know whatever. There, there's a sense that like God is speaking to me through this. You know, their their conclusion is not again. It's not just like there is a God philosophical statement and, and a story. No, it's like God is speaking to me through this. God is revealing himself to me through this, which obviously entails God's existence, that there is a God, but but people's experience in that way, the, the conditions that give rise to belief in God, it is not just conditions that give rise to kind of just a naked philosophical belief in God, but it's actually something deeper about who God is, God's character, God's love, God's power, um, etc. And so, you know, then, then part of how they approach this and the, re, the the reasonableness of this, you know, Plantinga says, well, is is this belief reasonable? Uh, well, partly you have to just begin from examples and and kind of build from the bottom up uh, and say, you know, tell the story of why do you believe in God? Um, why have you come to believe in that? And um, you know, and you kind of evaluate that on, in some ways, on a case by case basis. But I think part of what part of what he's saying is in a great many cases uh, that we would say, yeah, that I, I can see why you would believe in God and kind of take that as, as the ground um, of how you think about things. And, uh, you know, because again, we flash back to some of these other analogies like, you know, that I believe in my own memory or I, I, I uh, believe something about the mental state that other, other people are in. Um, you know, those are things that are not necessarily self-evident or evident to the senses, but it's, it's pretty reasonable to uh, believe in those things and to just operate as, as though they're true. Uh, and so, you know, where this takes us, as I, I mentioned this quote before, Wolterstorff uh, makes this point that we're entitled to reason from our belief in God 
without having first reasoned to it. Now, again, to be clear, I think this fits really well within the faith-seeking understanding model that we've been exploring. They're not saying don't give any kind of reasons. In fact, you know, that's part of the, you know, is it reasonable? We'll, we'll talk about, think through, like, why is it that you believe in God? Examine this. Um, but, but you're actually starting from belief in God, not saying I've got to, you know, construct all of this other stuff and then God is, uh, is sort of the last brick uh, that I'm going to put in the wall, but rather God is is the cornerstone. Belief in God is the foundation uh, for how I think about all of all of these other things. Um, and so this is, you know, in, in a lot of ways, uh, you know, when I think about how this resonates with William James, with how it resonates with Pascal, uh, I think there's this continuity to, to try to, with with all of them, take into account who we are as human beings, the the, the full picture. Um, that, that, that we're not just kind of cold-blooded brains in a vat assessing truth statements, but that there's something about uh, the path to, to truth and, the, and under, really understanding, especially understanding who God is, uh, that involves who we are as a whole person, uh, not just this one sort of very kind of rationalistic uh, segmented part of us. Um, and so uh, hopefully then when we think about how this all works together, um, I think it's a good, a good place to to conclude, thinking about how we see uh, faith and reason uh, working together, that it is, that's faith-seeking understanding, that, that we shouldn't, uh, as Christians, have to feel uh, ashamed or like we need to somehow first build up a, a good argument for God before we can even believe, but rather that we move from our belief uh, in a way that seeks to actually deepen that belief, to, to be able to give reasons, to be able to talk about why that is in a, in a helpful, uh, intelligent uh, reasonable way w- without assuming that reason or the reasons that we give themselves are, are the totality of the picture, that, that, that that's what uh, holds our belief, that ultimately uh, we see ourselves as, as held by God rather than us holding him, and that we're able to then move from that place of faith to, to deepen our understanding. All right, thanks for hanging with us. Uh, next time, uh, we're going to be digging into Uh, the problem of evil. Uh, So thinking about some of the questions and concerns there. Uh, Thanks for hanging with us. Until next time, blessings.